Okay, so we're just about halfway through uh, our verse-by-verse study in the book of 1 Peter. Um, Last week, we'll walk through verses 8 to 12 of chapter 3, and this morning we'll pick up on verses 13 to 17 of the same chapter. So um, let me have someone read verses 13 to 17. So 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Whoever gets there, just read loudly. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All right. Thank you, Norm. All right. So verse 12 is uh, closely tied to verse 13, and we'll walk through verse 12 last week. Um, and I think it's on that basis and with that in mind that Peter turns sort of more directly to this call to suffer here. So Peter here seems to lay out that suffering is the pathway to blessing. Um, and he does this just often throughout his book. He reminds us that, again, we are in good company because our Lord, as well, for our Lord, suffering was the pathway to blessing and triumph. And you see that in verses 18 and 22. Um, then down in uh, verse 1 in chapter 4, we're called to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. So we have to rest in this truth. Um, It is through suffering. God has called us to suffer in this way, um, and it is the pathway to blessing. And again, we see that most highly in Christ. Um, Peter has reminded us here um, over and over that we will be criticized, spurned, rejected, and despised by unbelievers in this life. But it is the unbeliever that will be judged by God and the believer that will be vindicated on the last day, which we'll look at a little more. And the Lord himself has accepted and will defend the Christian. The Lord has accepted and will defend the Christian. We are on the right team. So rest in that. So verse 12 gives us the strong affirmation that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous to observe and care for them, um, and his ears are open to their prayers for their various cares and needs. And his face is against those who do evil. We see that in verse 12. So the Lord will look with favor on the righteous, but he sets his face against those who practice evil. If the Lord sees me, which he does, and hears me and cares for me, which he does, That means that every strike of tribulation or persecution or physical harm that comes to me only comes by God's good and sovereign and gracious hand to glorify him. Right. So there's this convergence between my suffering and God's goodness and we don't separate them. Right. Suffering doesn't mean we're not blessed by the Lord. Um, More often, it means that that we are. Now, verse 13, Peter says, Who is there to harm you? So this is an interesting question because um, obviously we can be harmed. All of 1 Peter warns us to brace for and endure persecutions. We will suffer. So what is Peter saying here? Well, some do understand Peter to be speaking um, of this life. So they would say that people will generally treat believers well if they practice righteousness. Um, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good works? Sort of this tone. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good works? Right? You'll do well. Persecution won't necessarily come to you. Uh, Should we read the verse like that? Is that what it's saying? Um, I don't think so. Uh, Partly because that contradicts verses like uh, 2.19, which talks about enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is this and a whole host of other passages sort of point us in the other direction. Also, The future tense of this phrase, to harm, who is there to harm you, likely refers to future judgment. Uh, The question is rhetorical, and the answer is no one 
will ultimately harm believers on the day of judgment. So it's still this end-time eschatological pointing that Peter's doing here. On the contrary, God will reward them, the believer, for their faithfulness. And the word zealous in verse 13 means to burn with zeal. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good works? To burn with zeal and to be most eagerly desirous, zealous for good works. So this is a fervent pursuit of virtue, even in the midst of persecution, right? Not just in a plush life, but in the midst of persecution. The believer zealous for what is honorable and desiring to honor God will suffer, not just a little, but throughout their pilgrimage on earth. Um, As we are in a foreign land, so to speak, our home is in the heaven, we are pilgrims here, and we suffer persecution as pilgrims in the foreign land. Uh, That's sort of the whole brunt of Peter's message. All right, so nothing can ultimately harm the believer if if they continue to walk in the path of righteousness. So the pain we endure now as we suffer um, is temporary. Again, God will vindicate us. Um, Consider Romans 8, 31, which says, What shall we we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul isn't saying that believers wouldn't face opposition. His point is that no one can ultimately and finally triumph over believers since God will vindicate them on the last day. So again, um, kept by God, pursuing God while being persecuted, um, while persecution is upon you and upon the church. That's what Peter's uh, getting at here. Verse 14 14 starts with this this but. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for uh, what is good? But. Now, the but here is not uh, contradiction, Usually we see but, but's the contrary. Um, I was going that way, but I went this way. This is not a contradiction, but more of a clarification of verse 13. Uh, it could actually be translated as indeed. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Indeed, if you should suffer for righteousness. And we'll see why that's the case. Um, so when you read verse 14, it can come across like Peter is sort of going back on what he just said. Verse 13 says, who can harm you? And verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer, those seem like you just said who can harm you, but now you're saying even if you should suffer, are these contradictory? Is he sort of this double-minded person going back on what he said? No, I don't think so. Um, We know that believers can be harmed, even killed by opponents. So that's clearly not what Peter's getting at. But if you notice in the middle of verse 14, Peter says, those who endure opposition because of their, because they're zealous for what is good, they are blessed. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So the blessing actually comes from God himself. So believers are only ever beneficiaries when they are afflicted. So what's he getting at here? Um, another question, I think, which is a valid question here. If Who is there to harm you? Um, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Back at sort of the beginning here, he uses this word, blessed. What does blessed mean? What is he getting at with that? Um, We can't say, or sorry, we we can't say that um, the sufferings are pleasant. He's not saying by blessed that the sufferings as they come upon me, this feels good. We all know that. Uh, Suffering does not feel good. Affliction does not feel good. Um, And they wouldn't be sufferings if they did feel good. Uh, But if we sort of back up and allow scripture to interpret itself, we see that Peter might be getting his theology maybe from Jesus. I think that's likely. Um, And we touched on these passages a few weeks ago. Um, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Someone read this for us. Thank you, Will. So who rejoices when they suffer? 
who uh, leaps for joy when they suffer? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's very, very difficult in the midst of suffering um, to, to rejoice. But I think uh, Peter and other passages gives us encouragement on why that should be. And so I'm excited to sort of walk through that. Um, I think the, by bless, Peter means here that those who suffer are blessed, again, getting back to this, pointing forward, because of the eschatological end times reward they will receive. So Peter is always reminding his hearers that vindication um, will come to them. It's coming. So vindication is coming for you on your behalf, on the behalf of the Christian. So no one can harm you if you are zealous for what is good because ultimately his or her harm of you works to better serve you eternally. God just turns suffering on its head and says, this is how you ought to view it. So if you imagine um, suffering as water being poured out into a cup that's on a glass table, and some of the, um, the, the water of suffering spills on the table. So, sort of, this is, it may be a bad analogy, but walk with me. So God sort of squeegees that suffering and so that it all gets into the cup, and he makes sure that every last drop ends up in the cup of the reward and your joy in him. No suffering is wasted. So it really, it strips us of the why is this happening to me? Why is this persecution coming to me? Lord, you know, waving our fist at the heavens or in our hearts, um, not trusting the God who was reigning and sovereign. God will see to it that every suffering and persecution that comes upon his children will only ever serve them eternally. And so you have to sit and rest in that. Um, and I think we will see that. We will have to rest in that more and more as um, we go on in this life. Uh, persecution is still very much so coming to the church in America. Um, all right, where am I here? So the flower of my rejoicing and suffering, rejoicing while suffering, springs out of not the suffering itself, but the rich soil of the promises of God and what he says my suffering is producing. So my rejoicing comes out of the promises of God, not necessarily the suffering itself, but what they're producing. So we can now see why the word but in the beginning of verse 14 can be translated indeed. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Indeed, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Any thoughts on that? No more person in, of course. Um, the whole thing has to be about having a peace settled in the heart, even though you might be agitated outwardly. There is that confidence to do with the promises of God. So yeah. Absolutely. It's not a felt reality. It's a believed reality, if I can phrase it that way. Okay. It's even though everything goes wrong, all is well. So everything goes wrong is what you're swimming into. Right. But you know that in a way it's like uh, be happy, you know, like uh, don't worry, be happy type of deal. It's, you just shrug it off. Forming your own heart with the word. Absolutely. Yep. Of course. I think there is a, a suggestion of eternality here, but I think there's also blessings in the present. Absolutely. And uh, we're reminded there was a young boy in Africa who uh, 
was uh, persecuted for being a Christian. And you see him where they cut off his genitals and put his eyes out. And he's rejoicing that he could suffer for Christ. And he's happy. Yeah. And blessed, he's blessed. Yeah. And he even said, I'm blessed. And if you look at the uh, Sermon on the Mount, or even the chapter in Matthew, it constantly said, blessed means happy. Yeah. He's happy to have suffered. Yep. And, and he's, he's a joyful young man. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lesson for us. That, you know, we stub our toe and we get upset. And we should uh, constantly be in prayer for our brothers and sisters <clears throat> that are going through tremendous persecution yeah. when we go through all this time. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's good. Cut. Yeah, I really like what you said about the source of our joy not being the actual trial or the, the actual persecution. It's the, the future reward and the fact that we're able to serve Christ and that that's the end goal is yeah. Christ's glorification through that. And it yeah. makes me think of uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Uh, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the yep. throne of God. Yeah. So Right, 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 yep. He looks at shame and says, how dare you raise, beat your chest against the glory that God gets. No comparison, right? So that, that ought to be our, our mentality, yep. Yeah, man, good comments, good comments. All right, so let's jump back on the train here. Um, all right, so Peter also makes clear here that um, suffering is for righteousness sake or for what is good. So Peter qualifies this suffering and excludes troubles that come because of ignorance or sin. So remember uh, 2.20. Uh, let me have someone go to uh, 1 Peter 2.20 and then someone else 1 Peter 4.15. And then whoever gets the first uh, 2.20 first, you can read it. And then after that, 4.15. 1 Peter 2.20 and 4.15. Okay. 2.20? Rachel, okay. Thank you. You can read 2.20 first. For what friend is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in his sight. Thank you, Audrey. And then 4.15? Make sure that none of you suffers So it's clear in these passages that righteousness um, is another way of describing um, good. What? I'm sorry, I jumped around here. Those passages show us that we don't suffer for ignorance. Um, and our passage before us, uh, righteousness is another way of describing the good for which believers are zealous for. And, and we see that in 3, 3.13, which we just looked at. Um, now, Peter basically says... Um, because it's true that uh, this righteousness describes what is good, you ought to think this way um, in the way that we respond to uh, persecution or suffering. So here it is. Since believers are blessed by God when they suffer, they should not fear that what unbelievers can do to them. The NASB reads, do not fear their intimidation, do not be frightened. So this fits uh, Peter's emphasis on only fearing God, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. Only fear God. Um, he says plainly, do not fear men. And I think of Psalm 118.6, which says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So Peter has a similar tone in saying, who can harm you? Since no one can ultimately harm believers and since even their suffering as a sign of God's blessing, then it follows that they should not fear what others can do to them. So in this verse and verse 15, Peter alludes to Isaiah 8, 12. And we, he keeps pointing back to Isaiah um, throughout his letter. It says, uh, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. 
nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. In Isaiah 8.13, the Lord, uh, Kyrios, is clearly Yahweh. But here Peter added the word Christ. The transition from Yahweh to Christ is common in the New Testament. Looking at verse 15 here. And it shows that Jesus the Messiah deserves the same honor as Yahweh. And this falls right in line with the situation of Peter's readers. They were being persecuted for their allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. So the encouragement here is keep honoring Christ as the Holy One, fearing him instead of the people who are persecuting and harming you. So look in the eyes of those who persecute you, but in your heart, look to the heavens and say to them, I fear God more than I fear you. This is in all circumstances. We fear the Lord more than we fear men. And again, Peter plainly says, do not fear men. Honoring Christ as Lord doesn't make him Lord. He's already Lord. But believers demonstrate and acknowledge his lordship in their lives by honoring his name. So in our context, what does it mean to say, or what does it look like to honor the name of Christ? Just I sort of want to throw that out there. I want to tie this in. How we live today, 2016, whatever today is, November something. What does it look like to honor Christ as holy in your hearts, to, to set his name apart? Based off of what we're seeing here. When you're with Yeah. We must second, we have to love them, and we have to defend them. Absolutely. If they say anything that is not godly or mimic him or in any way divide him, we need to stand up. And sometimes that's hard. Yeah. Yeah, yep, and we're actually going to talk along those lines about giving a defense for the hope that we have. Yep, good stuff. Anybody else care to share? What does it look like for you in daily life to honor Christ, the Lord, is holy? same page. One accord. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. It's interesting, and uh, again, we're in verse 15 here. How much time do I have? Oh, okay. All right. It, it's interesting that some scholars do interpret this part of verse 15 um, as set apart the Lord, namely Christ. Um, so the meaning doesn't change dramatically um, if it's interpreted that way. But Peter seems to place more emphasis here on Christ's identification as Lord. So it seems Peter is stressing that what was said about Yahweh in the Old Testament was, is now new of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's go back to this, um, this heart. Honor, um, in, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does it mean um, here by honor Christ in your hearts? Well, I don't think we should understand this in our first Peter context as um, our inner and private lives that no one else sees. Um, the idea that uh, sort of my relationship with God is between me and God, it shouldn't have to be public. No one should have to see it. It's, it's, it's our thing, and we see that a lot um, in our culture. Um, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. Um, the heart is the origin of human behavior, 
It's the fountain from which all our actions come. So let's see how Peter references this heart um, idea in, in his epistle. Uh, let me have someone go to 1 Peter 1.22, and then whoever wants it, say I. Rachel. <laughs> all right, and then someone else go to 1 Peter 3.4. And whoever, all right. Rachel and Josh, have at it. Two, 122 and then 3-4. Your your Alright, thank you. And 3-4. Mm-hmm. Right, thank you. I actually do have PowerPoint for you. Um, and then remember Mark 7-20. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, and the list goes on. Um, Ashley Knoll, which is a, he's a scholar on the English Reformation, wrote, The mind doesn't direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants, and the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. So to sum it up, from the heart flows everything people do. Is that something that sounds common in our culture? Uh, Do we believe that we live out of our hearts? Um, Oftentimes you, you know, I don't know who that person was, but it wasn't me. That was you. (laughs) I don't know why I said, I don't know where that came from. That's just not me. Well, it is. It is you. Um, It may be the truest you, (laughs) but it is you. We, We live out of our hearts. Um, And our hearts are responsible for um, our actions, all right? So it's it's the spring from which we live. And um, so we looked at all that, and I said all that to see that setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts is not merely a private reality, but eventually becomes evident to all when believers suffer for the faith, which I think gets to Sabrina's point. Um, When they suffer for the faith, it becomes clear The inner life and the outer life are inseparable. Um, What happens within will inevitably be displayed to all, especially in the midst of persecution, right? So coming right behind this truth of setting Christ apart and your heart is holy is the sentence about believers being constantly ready to respond to those who ask about their faith or their hope, which I think gets to Audrey's point. We should be prepared to make a defense. Um, In the Greek, apologia, literally this means a verbal defense, a reasoned statement of argument. Now, this wasn't in my notes, but I think that cuts at the, I don't have to say anything. Um, They can simply see my life and that be enough uh, for them to turn from their sin and trust in the true and living God. I I don't think that that's the case in that's not clear, um, and we see that from First Peter here. Literally, this word apologia, a defense, a verbal defense, a reasoned statement of argument. And I think Peter has in mind here um, informal situations when believers are asked unexpectedly or randomly about their faith. And that's made clear when he says, be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. So this has so many implications, um, one of which is this you ought to be able to explain what you believe and why. We don't all have to be many James Whites, right? We all start balding and getting a gray beard and we're just killing it. No, we just should be able to give a reasoned uh, defense for what we believe. Um, And we do, the, the crucifixion of Christ, the life of Christ, it wasn't in this vacuum. Like, these things weren't done secretly. They were done publicly, and they can be defended publicly. As Christians, we have a rock-solid, anchor-grounded, historically proven, word-affirmed faith. I'll say it again. A rock-solid, historically proven, word-affirmed faith. Believers have solid intellectual grounds for believing the gospel. The truth of the gospel is a public truth, all right? So now, and sorry, I lost my place here. 
Well, I guess I'll, I'll skip that. What are, you, what are you guys' thoughts on that? So engaging, and I'm thinking about people who say, well, um, faith and um, reason or faith and intellect, they don't go together, right? You just believe, and if you try and give an intellectual argument for it, then that's showing your lack of faith. How do you respond to someone? How do you help them to sort of uh, better understand and walk through that? Is faith and intellect, are they contradictory? Should the Christian just believe blindly, or should the Christian just reason intellectually? What are you guys' thoughts on that? Absolutely. It's something that's very concrete. Faith is more about trusting who God is. You know, it doesn't go against reason. Right. You know, um, sometimes false beliefs arise. Right. But in time, you know, they're debunked. Yeah. So I'll put my trust in God, despite what, you know, fossil you found. <laughs> right. Before. <laughs> you know right. I mean? It's always something. <laughs> Thoughts on this? Faith, reason, intellect. Uh, the very statement that faith and intellect do not go together. Um, I would ask the person if they believe that, and then point out that that indeed is an intellectual argument. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> very true. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely, it's not blind. Well, you had a thought? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think those are um, separate. Um, I think faith is. Faith is trust in, or uh, the anchor of your hope rests in something. Um, it's not something misty. It's an actual, it's a truth. It's the, uh, it's the promises of God. It's his word. And it is him. Um, God discloses to us his character, um, that he is holy, which means we can believe what he says he has done. And so we put our faith in that that God is um, just and that he's merciful. So when persecution comes, um, because God is holy, he'll do what he said he has done, and he's also being gracious to me. I put my faith in that. So it's, it's faith and rock-solid proof. Now, there are, we can talk about that. We can talk on the other side, you know, evidentialism and, and how we uh, give a reason defense for faith historically and ar archaeologically um, and all those things, but it is. It, it's faith in something, and it is faith in the character of God and who he says he is. Um, R.C. Sproul says on this, I'm not going to read the whole quote because it's really long for the sake of time, but he says, we find superstition and credulity throughout the church. That's why we continually measure our faith by the word of God and make sure we are assenting to the reasonable historical testimony of the prophets and the apostles to the triumph of Christ. Faith is not, not mere intellectual assent. We aren't saved simply because we affirm the truth of certain facts, but because we trust the person whom those facts reveal. So faith is uh, definitely more than knowledge. 
but it is not less. Right? And I thought that was really, really good. All right, so I got 15 minutes. Let me try and get through my last few pages here. Um, where am I? All right, so it, it's interesting here. Peter goes on to say, uh, to be ready to make a defense for anyone who asks you a reason for hope. And that's interesting because he uses the word hope rather than faith. So hope and faith are closely related, but they are distinct at the same time. Hope was an important word for Peter. He uses it a few times in his epistle, and it focuses um, on, again, the eschatological inheritance that awaits believers. So the implication here is that unbelievers will recognize the way believers respond to hardships and see that their hope is in God rather than pleasant circumstances or an easy life. So think about that for a sec. So hardships will allow you to amplify God's faithfulness to you in the midst of them rather than a cruise control easy life, right? So hardships are working and we can take advantage of those hardships to, again, as Sabrina said, um, show unbelievers that we're hoping in God and not our circumstances. And this hope is in you. It's in your hearts. Again, we're getting back to this inner life from which our outward actions flow. Um, they are, again, inseparable. The New Testament does not separate the inner from the outer, the private from the public. Whatever is inside is manifested on the outside. So Peter adds uh, that this defense must be made with gentleness and with respect. In other words, we don't get hostile and agitated when asked about our faith, the hope we have. Um, I remember being at Lake Yola one time, and we were evangelizing around the lake, and I came across a couple, and I just asked them about you know, what they believe in their faith, and uh, they said they were Christian, and I just wanted to you know, sort of you know, pry a little bit, and I just asked them a few more questions, and they, um, they really... We're like, okay, look, you are overstepping, you're bound, you know, you don't need to know exactly why I believe what I believe. And they became very agitated, and, and I'm thinking, like, man, like, as a Christian, you should, don't you want to tell me, <laughs> you know? Don't you want to be able to share that? Um, so, again, we, we, we don't respond with, with agitation, but we respond, as Peter says, with gentleness and respect, Right? So again, the New Testament uh, shows us that these aren't separate things. Um, so we saw earlier that the fear God, that we should fear God over men. Um, and also, so I'm thinking we fear God over men. Um, we see God as he is. We're creatures in light of a holy God. That should also make us um, bold and at the same time humble. Bold and humble. We see our position before a holy God, and we recognize what we've been saved from. And so we speak with gentleness and humility, which comes, again, as a reality of when the creature considers himself before his creator. So those who fear God and live in humility will treat even their opponents with dignity and not lash out against them. So bottom line, we view ourselves rightly before God, this will allow us to respond rightly to unbelievers. We water our souls with the gospel first, and so our tone when preaching the gospel is grace-filled, right? Boldness, humility, gentleness, respect, gospel in, gospel out, so to speak, right? So for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump to 16 quick here. So verse 15 here blends right into verse 16. We saw that gentleness and reverence in verse 15 primarily spring from the believer's understanding of his position before God. And verse 16 keeps with that line of thinking with the phrase, having a good conscience. So we live Coram Dale. I keep saying that. I love that term. Coram Dale means what? Before the face of God. Yes, before the face of God. And everything we do, we live Coram Dale. So we live before the face of God, before the presence of God, which means that we don't resort to revenge or sinful anger when we're called to depend or to defend, I'm sorry, the hope that we have. So I'm talking to you, but I'm talking before God, which affects how I talk to you. God is my audience. He's my 
primary audience, my primary motivation. And so our conduct uh, before unbelievers is not one of shame, but one that will, on the last day, put them to shame. And you see this idea at the beginning of chapter 4. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it for the sake of time. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I'm reading verse 1 to 4. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time has passed, um, for, for the time that passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, right? And then verse 5 says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Again, those who abuse the good conduct of believers will themselves be put to shame in the last day. So we live upright before men and God, and still men slander and malign and criminate the Christian. Now, it shouldn't be even in the face of this anger for you, for you that I feel, but fear. And why is that? Because it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? We see another hint here uh, that the primary form of persecution in First Peter was not um, physical, but social. Peter addressed the situation by saying, when you are slandered or when they malign you, um, I mean, we get this. Believers, um, unbelievers speak maliciously of Christians all the time. It's not foreign for us, and it's going to become more common. Um, and you don't have to be a Christian for long to start to see and feel uh, the malicious and spiteful attacks from those who oppose your Lord. And opposing him, they oppose you, but they primarily oppose your Lord. The crazy thing here is what unbelievers criticize. Um, and what does Peter say they criticize here? your good behavior. So not your behavior in drunken folly. They actually approve that, but they criticize your good behavior. Just the sin is so irrational. Anyway, the word for behavior Peter uses here is a word that means the kind of conduct that is pleasing to God. So they hate and criticize what God approves. And I'm sure that sounds familiar because we've all experienced that to some degree. Um, now, the behavior Peter is speaking of here is uh, distinctively Christian, and that's clear by the phrase, in Christ. So, don't slander someone, get called out for, and call it persecution, basically. Right? So, it's behavior that's in Christ. And remember, again, our context back in chapter 2. What credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Um, it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no credit, right? Peter continues to emphasize that the conduct of the believers related to the Lord where all conduct is in the sphere of Christ. So when he uses this term good conduct, it's fundamentally the equivalent of Christian. So think about this. Um, Peter says that they malign your good conduct. In other words, they malign your life as a Christian. So what this implies is that the Christian doesn't live a hypocritical, compartmentalized life, right? So we're not a Christian here, a Christian there, a Christian over there, a Christian at that event, you know, a Christian at that family function. We live as believers all the time. Again, we live before the face of God. Um, and so there is some divide amongst uh, commentaries about this, um, specifically this being ashamed part that he follows that up with. And he says that believers will feel, some say that believers will feel ashamed, that unbelievers will feel ashamed during this life, but recognize the conduct of believers um, or the shame of the eschatological referring to the humiliation experience on the last day. So sort of two different thoughts there. Although the unbeliever recognizes the good conduct of the believers now, I think the focus is still on the end times and the day of judgment. Um, why? First, in 1 Peter 2.6, put to shame refers to the last day. I'm going to go through these sort of quickly for the sake of time. 
Um, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It seems to be a last day reference. Uh, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Right? Again, seems to be a last day reference. Um, secondly, believers are already abused and criticized for their good behavior in Christ. And it's sort of strange that suddenly a more good behavior would lead unbelievers to feel ashamed. Um, but that seems sort of clear to me. Uh, third, um, 1 Peter 2.12 and 3.16 are parallels in a few ways. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we saw in 1 Peter uh, 2.12 that righteous conduct of believers will lead some unbelievers to salvation and to glorify God. But Peter also emphasizes another truth in our passage here, 3.16. Some unbelievers refuse to acknowledge the goodness of the lives of those believers. So, on the last day, they will be put to shame by God himself and will have to acknowledge that believers did live righteously. So, 1 Peter 2.12 and 3.16 don't contradict each other. They bring out different responses to the godly lives of believers. Some unbelievers will see their good conduct and glorify God believe the gospel, others will refuse to believe and only admit on the last day the goodness of believers when God judges them. Huh. Went through that quickly. No, it's a lot very technical. But I um, just want to lay out those different aspects of that. All right. Verse 17. I'm almost done here. Three minutes. Um, any thoughts before I go there? Quick comments, thoughts? George. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's good. good stuff. All right, so we're going to sort of bring it to a close here in verse uh, 17. I don't have much, just a, a little on this. Okay, so the word for in verse 17 connects it to verse 16. So notice the suffering of believers here is attributed to the will of God. Um, and that sounds a lot like chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter uses the Greek word, um, I'll try to say this right, uh, pasco, for suffer. And this word for suffer refers to the varying experience of good and bad. So the verb leaves the extent of the suffering of believers sort of open-ended. And he does that because some believers experience more slander and even physical harm than others. But this is what we have to remember, that God is sovereign. So we're going to take this full circle back to where I started. God rules and reigns, and so whatever opposition the believer faces, it's not outside of God's control. So the question is, do you trust that? Are you resting in that? Um, Think about all the opposition and suffering that's come into your life and will come into your life. Do you trust that God is sovereign? It's one thing to know it theologically. It's another thing to trust that God is sovereign and sort of rest in the seat of his sovereignty, right? You see the chair, it's there. You go and sit in it, and you you rest in the fact that God is sovereign. This may be hard uh, to hear, but the suffering each believer endures represents God's will for them. Philippians 1.29, again, 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Salvation, a gift. Suffering, a gift. It's granted to you, right? Peter didn't deny the reality that Satan viciously rages in his opposition and persecution of the church. Neither did he give a pass to human beings who threaten and persecute God's people. Nevertheless, ultimately, no one can touch God's children apart from God's own permission. Is there a war in your heart on that? We see that clearly in Job. Satan could, Satan could only touch Job by God's permission. And God's intentions and motives in allowing suffering are the complete contrast from Satan's. And so, God remains, even in your persecution, unwaveringly good. Amen. Amen. And Satan is only ever evil. Right? We have to rest there. There, there is... I thought initially there's mystery there, but I think the truer thing is that only a God who was reigning and controls all things can do that and work suffering in that way. So, in closing, we rest not in sufferings themselves, but in the God who orchestrates them to only ever serve his beloved children for their glory and for his good. So, it's, we got to sit there. We got to rest there. Persecution is still coming. I'm not going to get into political stuff, but it's coming. It's still coming. Um, the Bible promises it. Um, it's coming to the church. It's, I say the church in America. It's already happening in most of the church, um, um, foreign to us. Um, but it's, it, it's happening. And so this letter is for the Christians, for the heart of the Christian to rest in, in the Lord, to rest in his goodness, to rest in his sovereignty, to rest in the fact that he is good, kind, merciful, true, just, holy, even in the midst of persecution. And so that's where we rest. And with that, let's pray.